Thanks, Taylor. How about we pray, hey? Father in heaven, as we read your word and hear it now explained, we pray that by your spirit it will move us and change us. Lord, as we consider what it is to have hope, we pray that you will help us to be certain of it and know that the ground on which we stand is firm and trustworthy. Lord, will you encourage our hearts this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, guys, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Romans. Uh, We've done four chapters, and so far I think we've seen three things. Uh, The first thing that that Paul, who's writing this letter, has told us is our our need. Uh, God is angry with us because we have sinned. And if nothing diverts that anger, then we will face his judgment and we will be condemned. Second, he's told us how the gospel meets our need. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, God's anger is appeased and his righteousness is made available to us such that when we face his judgment, we will be found innocent and not guilty. Third, so he's told us our need, how the gospel meets that need. He tells us how we accept that gospel and how we claim his righteousness. And that's simply by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus. Now today, as I've mentioned, we're beginning a new section of Romans. So far in chapters 1 to 4, we've seen what the gospel is. And now today, as we move on to Romans chapter 5 to 8, we see what the gospel gives. And what the gospel gives can be summarized in a single word. That single word is hope. Now I don't know what you think of when you think of hope, uh, but generally I think that if you're anything like me, you'll tend to think of it as something that is uncertain. Something out there in the future that you really, really want and hope to get, but may be denied to you. I don't know what it is that you hope for. Maybe you hope to be married, or to one day have kids, or maybe to pass your course. Wherever it is that you hope for, you tend to build your life around your hopes, don't you? It's the thing that you target that's on the horizon, that you focus all your energy towards. And because you build your life on it, what happens is that... When it looks like we're going to get our hope, we get really excited. We're filled with joy. But then again, if it looks like that hope is becoming a little less certain, uh, or its possibility starts to go down, well, we start to get really sad. And we plummet from the heights of happiness all the way through to the depths of despair. And in the worst case scenario, what happens is you become so disappointed and so disillusioned that you give up hope completely. You think that the thing that you've once hoped for is now impossible, and so you conclude, why should I even bother? Now, as Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 5, he is not unaware of this fact for Christians. And he knows that the hope that the gospel holds out to us can at times look bleak or uncertain or maybe even impossible. You see, the life of the Christian is hard. Because we don't just have to deal with all the other crap that happens to the rest of the people in the world, but we've also got to wrestle with our own sin. We've also got to put up with persecution. So there's a whole bunch of things that make our existence as Christians really difficult. And so as it is, what happens is we normally end up kind of panting on the sideline, just trying to figure out how we're going to get through the day. And we start to ask the question, is is this Christian thing, is, is it even worth it? Maybe it's not even true. So what these chapters are designed to do to us, chapters 5 to 8, they're designed to give us certainty. Because the hope of the gospel is not just a wish or a dream or a desire. Hope is the logical follow-on from faith. It is certain. 
It's the only thing that we have that remains firm through any storm. And so how we're going to approach the chapter today is actually fairly simple. We're going to briefly summarize what the Christian hope is. And then we're going to look at three reasons why we can say that that hope is certain. What the hope is and why it is certain. So first of all, let's have a look at the Christian hope. First thing I want you to see is that hope will always follow faith. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 5 there in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So there's the faith. In other words, given that we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've become counted righteous by God. Look at what follows. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So there's a state of grace that we're in now. And, and then finally, and here's your key phrase, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus, something happens. Something is placed on our horizon that we can look forward to beyond our present circumstances. And what Paul calls that is the hope of the glory of God. Now, he doesn't stop to explain himself as to what that is. So let's do some brainstorming. We're going to have to do a bit of work to figure this one out. Um, I think the most obvious meaning that Paul could have here is that what we hope for is that God will be glorified. That's what he means by the glory of God. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you go back to chapter 1, do you remember what happens? In our sinfulness, we suppress the truth of God. And what do we do? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal creatures. And so maybe as Christians who have realized that exchange has happened and that is a bad thing, maybe what we hope for is that God's glory will finally be returned to the place that it deserves to be. Now I think that makes a lot of sense and that may well be true, but I don't actually think that's what Paul is talking about here in this verse. Flip over the page to Romans chapter 8. It's a couple of chapters on from chapter 5. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. Look at what he says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that's interesting. We've got some glorified language. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, we've got some glory here. What is the glory? We'll skip down to verse 29. Again, talking about Christians. For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I want you to notice the progression here in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, did you notice the last two stages in that progression? It's the same two stages in chapter 5. Since we've been justified, we hope for the glory of God. And so here, what it says is that once we are justified, the next stage of God's plan for us is to glorify us. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? But the thing to get about all of this is that that doesn't happen instantly. Like we've seen in chapter 8, verse 18... There is a period of suffering there that exists between the state where we're justified and the state where we're glorified. But glory is the trajectory. And what God promises us is that he will make us perfect, conformed there in verse 29, to the image of his Son. 
no longer encumbered by weakness, no longer subject to sin and suffering, freed from toil and labor. What it means is that we will cast off our sinful flesh, we will say goodbye to the sinful world, and we will be like Jesus and made to reflect the glory of God in sinless perfection, forever at ease in the new heavens and earth. That is the hope of the glory of God. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, sure, if you're a Christian, we've already been justified. We're counted right by God. But we aren't righteous. Not yet. You see, our flesh still remains in bondage to sin. And so we have to deal with the fallout from our actions. And even when we're not directly responsible, we suffer from the actions of other people. Because it's not just us, it's the world. The world still remains in bondage to sin. And this is true even in peaceful, affluent Australia. I mean, mental illness has been crazy over the last 10, 15 years. We are all stressed. We are all anxious. We're all lonely. See, nobody is untouched by the suffering of sin in this world. And even if you've lived a charmed life up until this point, the reality is the people that you love will die. And you will die. Sorry to be all morbid on you about that. Get all, be a downer. But, but you have to accept that there is a reality about your existence. There are certain boundary markers that have been placed in your existence that you can't escape, that you can't get past. Your life will be suffering. But what the Gospel says is that the Christian has a hope beyond those boundary markers, a hope that allows them to cross it. They have the prospect of release, renewal, no longer sinful, no longer suffering, what we hope for is the glory of God. And that is the Christian hope. Let's move on to our second point. What are the reasons for that hope? So the thing to understand about the Christian hope is that it is not wishful thinking. It's not a dream in our hearts that we think will be true. It's not some desire that we've deluded ourselves into thinking will happen. We actually have hardcore reasons. And they are good reasons. In fact, our reasons are so good that Paul can say that we boast in our hope. Now, some of you may not see this in your translation because the ESV says rejoice, but today, if you've got an NIV, it's closer to the mark here. Christians boast in our hope. That's at the end of verse 2. That's what it's saying. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, does that make us arrogant? Well, no, because the hope that we have is given to us on the basis of grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. Uh, and besides, it's not a nasty boasting. This is confidence. Confidence based on a knowledge, a certain knowledge of the truth. It's sort of like a university maths professor coming along and then like doing a year three maths test. right? For him to say, I'm going to get 100% of this test, that's not arrogant. That's just acknowledging the reality of events. So too it is with the Christian hope. We boast because we are confident. We have a certain knowledge that we will not be disappointed. And I think this chapter, Romans chapter 5, it gives us three reasons why we can boast in our hope. Let's have a look at them. The first one, somewhat surprisingly, is suffering. Suffering is a reason for our hope. Have a look there in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice, or better yet, boast. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, when I was taught to write an essay at college, we were told to find the biggest objection to your thesis you could possibly find. And then you show why that objection is not valid. 
And if you could do that, then no matter what else people flung at your argument, it would stand strong. Because if you can get rid of the biggest argument, then all the other little ones are just not going to do the same sort of damage. Now, what's the biggest objection somebody can deliver to the Christian who says, I have a certain hope? Well, it's suffering, isn't it? It's essentially that, well, your life still sucks, Christian. I mean, sure, okay, great, you're justified. You're in a state of grace, favoured by God, destined for glory. So why do you keep getting cancer? Why do your loved ones die? Why did you lose your job? Why do you have anxiety? And so what Paul does is he takes this objection early and he turns it on its head. He says, Christians, we don't lament in our sufferings. Yeah, they're hard. Yeah, they make us cry. But we don't lament. We boast in them. Even those, says Paul, is a source of confidence in our hope. Now, why is that? Well, it's because of what they produce in us. Have a look there at that list again in verse 3 and 4. Our suffering produces endurance, which then produces character, which finally produces hope. Now, that word character, I think, is really important. It sort of means like proof. So as far as I can tell, what's happening here is that if you successfully endure suffering, you are proving to yourself and to those watching on that your faith is not misplaced. Similar thing happens in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7 whereby suffering proves the genuineness of our faith. So basically what's happening here is that it's only true hope that helps you endure indefinitely through suffering. And if it helps you endure through suffering, it in turn reinforces the hope that you have. You see, false hope, it doesn't give you staying power. It gives you wishful thinking that pulls out the rug from under you at some point. But true hope, true hope helps you move forward. So that's the first reason Paul gives But at this point, you may be thinking, well, hang on a minute, I've got what is the obvious question, Matt. What makes the Christian hope at this point any better than the hope of a Miss Universe contestant? And I know you've been thinking that, I've got an answer for you, okay? Well, you you know what they do, right? Like, they go to this pageant and they all get asked the questions uh, to make it so they're not just, you know, bimbos, but they've actually got some moral substance inside them. And they, they always ask the question, what would you change in your life, your history, your past experience? And, you know, they all say, like, well, actually, um, I wouldn't change anything because it's made me the person that I am today, right? And I think if you kind of look at verses 3 and 4, you're probably thinking, well, hang on a minute, Paul. This is exactly the same as what this woman would be saying, right? What distinguishes the Christian hope from the rest of the survivors, the ones who have actually endured hardship and life and come out on top? Well, we need to go deeper. And that leads us to our second reason. The second reason we have for the hope that we have is that God's love is shown to us in Jesus' death. Now, we know that God's promise of glory is legit because we know that he loves us. And that love here in this passage, we're told, is confirmed to us in two different ways. First of all, it's confirmed in our hearts. And then second of all, it's confirmed in history. So let's have a look at both of those. First of all, verse 5, God's love is confirmed in our hearts. Let's have a look, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. There's that, that boasting language again, by the way. It doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, at first glance, this verse seems a little strange, but it's actually quite simple. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus... What happens is God gives you his Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart. 
Now, no, we're not talking literally here, like it's just in there in the left ventricle or whatever, just, just making some room there. When the Bible talks about heart, what he's talking about is the center of your being, the center of your thoughts and your feelings, um, your desires and will. And what he says is that by the means of his spirit, he places his spirit in our heart and God convinces our heart, he convicts it, convinces our thoughts and our feelings and our desires that his love for us is real. And he's not just talking about that foolish presumption that the world has, that people in our society have, which kind of go, well, of course God loves me. I'm, I'm me, aren't I? He's talking about a deep conviction to the Christian that they are convinced of, that God is no longer angry with us, but instead his love for us as his child is now true. That's the sort of love that the Spirit convinces us of. Now, I know that there's still a skeptic in here somewhere and they're probably thinking, well, hang on a minute, that reason isn't any better than the first one about suffering. They're both subjective. How can you not say that the Christian hope is just subjective and therefore could be a delusion? And I want to say two things at this point. The first of all is, yes, they are both subjective. But that in no way lessens their importance for the believer who experiences them. As a Christian who has endured suffering as a Christian who has been subjectively convicted that God loves me, I can personally attest to the, the conviction of that hope and the importance of that hope. And you can ask any older Christian at church, if you go to church, they will tell you the same thing. As they've progressed through suffering, um, as they have grown in maturity, they have been more and more convicted of this truth. But I've got a second thing to say. And the second is that if only those reasons, if only the only reasons that we had um, those subjective reasons, then I'd probably agree with you. I'd concede your point. But the reality is uh, that we have more than those reasons. Sure, subjective reasoning, it does little to convince us of an external objective fact, but we have more than that because the subjective assurance that the Holy Spirit gives to us, His conviction in our heart, it's actually based on objective fact. Not something in here, but something out there. And that leads us to the second way that God's love is confirmed to us, the objective way, and that is through history. Simply put, we know that God loves us because Jesus died for us. And that is the objective grounds upon which our subjective conviction from the Holy Spirit is based on. Holy Spirit uses evidence. He doesn't just give us feelings. It's a conviction, not a feeling. Have a look here at verse 6. 4, notice that. There's the reason. 4. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now I know there's a bit of confusion there about who a good person is and why they're better than a righteous person. But regardless of what's going on there, Paul's meaning is very clear. It is only in extreme cases that somebody would die for somebody else. And when that happens, it's because that person has, something, has decided something about them that makes them worth dying for. Some examples. You will die for a child. You won't die for a pedophile. You'll die for a spouse. But you won't die for the woman who's cheated on you with your husband. And so if you deem somebody to be deserving, then you may, under certain circumstances, give your life for theirs. But you would never do it for somebody who you have deemed unworthy and undeserving. 
And I know that's true because every time you drive and somebody tries to do a sneaky and kind of come up behind you and try to merge in in front of you, what do you do? You put the accelerator on and make sure there's no gap for the car to get in, right? The point that Paul has here is that there are limits to human love. And then he goes on and he says here in Romans, but there are no limits to God's love. Because at a certain point in history, he objectively put his money where his mouth was and he died for those of us who are undeserving. We were ungodly. We were still sinners. And don't miss the still there. We aren't meeting God halfway in our salvation. We were doing doughies on his front lawn and then peeing on his grass when he came out of the house and invited us in for dinner. He knew what he was getting himself into and we didn't deserve it at all. And yet he did it. And for the Christian, the one who has renounced his or her sinfulness, the fact that he did do it constitutes the single greatest reason that we have to be assured of the hope of the glory of God. And that's why he says in verse 9 that since we have therefore been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Basically, our, our justification through the death of Jesus assures us that when we face God on judgment day in the future, what will be waiting for us is not his wrath and anger and punishment, but his glory. And verse 10 says the same thing there. Have a look. If God reconciled us when we were his enemies, now that we're reconciled and counted his friends, well, what will we expect when we reach him on judgment day? We'll sail on through judgment to glory. The real worry has been overcome. We now know where we stand and we stand with God. And that's why in verse 11, we can boast in him. That same word, remember, rejoice. We know that he loves us because he bled for us. And so our hope is made certain. At judgment, we won't receive wrath. What we'll receive is glory. So that's the second reason, God's love in Jesus' death. Two down, one to go. And this third reason is a bit different to the others. Uh, the third reason we have a certain hope is because of the reign of grace. Like I said, this is a little different to the others because properly speaking, verse 12 to 21 is its own section in Romans. Uh, and in it, what Paul does is he makes us aware of a dramatic shift in power that has occurred in human history. Where once we lived under the reign of sin and death, now, because of Jesus, we live under the reign of grace. And that provides us with reason for hope. And then the closest parallel I could think to describe this is sort of like a refugee. A refugee lives under the dominion of an oppressive government. He has no hope for a full and happy life. Very little rights, very little freedom. He lives in fear and despair. But once that refugee escapes or is rescued and is established in a country with a fair and just government, he has every reason for confidence. And what these verses are saying is that this has happened to the Christian. You have changed dominions. You are no longer under the reign of sin and death. You are under the reign of grace. Now, to understand how that comes to be, we need to be introduced to two men who stand at the head of each of those dominions. Now, I don't know whether you've seen the movie Troy. Um, I don't think that you have. It kind of came out in 2004, and the other day I found out you're all like born in 2001. So you guys probably weren't even walking when this movie was in the cinemas. Uh, here's what happens in Troy. It's, it's one of my favourite movies, uh, particularly because of the opening scene. And what happens is, as the movie kind of begins, you've got two grand armies facing off against each other. 
And they decide that instead of just hacking the, the bits out of all of them and killing everybody, they would let two champions, one from each army, stand for their armies and battle it out. And the champion who won, his army would win, and therefore the other army had to surrender and submit to the rule of their new ruler. And so every individual soldier's fate in both of those armies rested on the outcome of the battle between two champions. And what we see in these verses in chapter 5, 12 to 21, is that the course of human history is reduced down to the actions of two champions, upon whom the fate of every man, woman and child would depend. First, there's Adam. He's the first man. He's the old man. And it was because of his actions that the dominion of sin and death was ushered in. And then there was Jesus, the new man, who by his actions ensured that the dominion of grace would abound to many. So those are the two men. Let's have a look at them. First of all, let's have a look at the first champion of humanity, Adam. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then he kind of doesn't finish his sentence, he starts to say another thing. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam, as the first champion of the human race, stuffed it big time. Rather than ruling under God, he rebelled. And his one act of disobedience led to the introduction of two powers that would from that point on dominate the human race. And you see them there in verse 12. What's the first one? Sin. And then after that, through sin, death. And I want you to notice the complexity of what's going on here. Because it's not as if Adam just opened Pandora's box and all of a sudden we're unjustly suffering the consequences of his action. There's actually something about Adam's representative nature that means that the condemnation he brought upon himself isn't just limited to him, but extends to all of us. And you see this in verse 18. What does it say? One trespass led to condemnation for all men. In other words, we bear a corporate guilt because Adam, humanity's representative, sinned. Now, a good example of this is actually from our history, and it's in the stolen generation. Now, 2008, you guys would have been walking by then. Uh, do you know what Kevin Rudd, who was the then Prime Minister, did? He apologised on behalf of the nation for removing Indigenous Australians from their families. And that apology triggered a whole bunch of people because they were all like, well, hang on a minute, why are you apologising for me? I didn't do a thing. But what Rudd was rightly acknowledging was that we as a nation bore the guilt of the past. Corporately, we were guilty. Even if individuals like you or I never did anything to, to harm our Indigenous countrymen. You see, because I was a member of the Australian nation, I was guilty. Now, in a similar way, because I am a member of the human race, I bear the corporate guilt of Adam, the one who represents me. So that's what's going on here as Adam as our head. But if you thought that was complex, let's add another layer. Because even though Adam, our representative, made us guilty, it's not as if that we were innocent parties in all of this. Look again at the end of verse 12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's own actions left us condemned, 
But those actions also set us on a trajectory whereby we ourselves would do the same sinful things. And so we aren't just born under God's wrath. We ourselves do things that incur God's wrath. And this, all because of Adam. Now, this passage, by the way, just as an aside, is the reason why we can know that Adam was a real human being. It's been quite popular in recent decades to dismiss Genesis 1-3 to as a sort of creation myth. And what they claim is that Adam and Eve and the snake and the tree in the garden, none of them ever really existed. It's more of a picture metaphor or a story. The account, they say, is still true, but it's like one of Jesus' parables. It's the meaning, not the actual events that has lasting relevance. But the thing that we see from Romans 5 is that Paul's argument depends on Adam being a historical figure. He can't be a myth because his actions shape the course of human history. And so because of him, you and I, from the time we are conceived, we are ruled by sin and death. Now, I was at a church on Sunday uh, and we met some missionaries from the Democratic Republic of Congo and they were saying that in the region that they lived, um, children were born based on the bad events that were happening at the time of their birth. So one, one person they met was literally called the corpse is still in the house. And that's because when he was born, there was a member of his family who had died and the body was yet to be removed from the house. What are we called when we are born? We are called sinful. We are called dead. Why? Because Adam, as our representative, ushered in the dominion of sin and death. And it's one that we were born into. So that's our first champion. What about our second? Well, there's no prizes for who he is. Verse 14, we're told that Adam was a type or a pattern of one who was to come. And that person, says Paul, was the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, like Adam, he too would become representative head of humanity. And therefore, like Adam, his actions would determine the course of human history. But here's the thing. Where Adam sinned, Jesus obeyed. And it's these two actions that Paul pits against each other in verses 15 to 17 to see which champion is stronger. It's sort of like their signature move. I don't know whether you've ever played Mortal Kombat, but it's sort of like that right at the end, right? Adam has the trespass. And Jesus, he has the free gift. And what they do is they arm themselves with their one action and then they run at each other. Well, what happens? Well, have a look there at verse 15. We see there that the free gift is not like the trespass. They've got different weapons. And by the way, the free gift isn't justification. It's tricky. You might think it is because that is a gift given to us by God. We see that in chapter 3. But the free gift here is Jesus' one act of righteousness, which is his voluntary death on our behalf, which we saw a bit earlier. But back to chapter 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Jesus' action, his weapon, it is in, a, it's in, in his very nature in another league. His swordsmanship is better. He's got a bigger gun. Whatever it is that you want to think about, that's what's going on. But look at verse 16, because it's not just better, it achieves more. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more 
will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam's one act of sin, it brings condemnation and death reigns. But Jesus' one act of obedience brings justification and it neutralizes the reign of sin and death and instead guarantees to those who've been justified that they will reign in life. Starting to see the hope coming out here? Now the same thing, it happens in Troy. And the reason I love it so much is because this is exactly how the scene goes down. The first champion is called out. Now he's called Boagrius. And like, Boagrius! And this giant, hulking, eight foot tall, muscular dude comes out. Tons of swords, no teeth. He's the sort of dude that you do not want to meet in a dark alleyway. And this is Adam, right? His one sin brought death to everyone. And no one in the history of the world has ever defeated him. And you have the army in the movie, they're standing behind Boagrius going, oh yeah, we got this one in the bag, this is awesome. We're, we're going to do this, right? And in every other normal circumstance, you would at this point be thinking the other army is wetting their pants right now. But they're standing there confident. It's like, why? You should be screaming, I don't know, we're doomed, Adam has arrived. We'll be forever bound to the reign of sin and death. But, but they're confident. The second champion is called out. You know who he is, right? It's Achilles. They go, Achilles! And this normal size, normal looking guy in armor just kind of wanders out. And the army just goes nuts. There's froth and they're like, ah, this is so good, right? And then what happens is the two champions have been called out. They run at each other. And do you know what happens? Adam, Boagrius' death, he doesn't even land a stroke. He starts to draw his sword, but Achilles is just sprinting towards him. And he does this really cool jumpy thing where he pulls his sword out and kind of stabs him behind. And in a single thrust of his sword, just like Adam's single act of righteousness, he dispatches the champion. This is what Jesus is to Adam. His action secures our future. And it's the reason why we can boast in our hope. It's the reason why we can boast in our suffering. Because we know that we are no longer bound under the reign of sin and death. We know that Adam will no longer have the final say on Judgment Day because we know who our champion is. He bled for us. And in that single action, we know his love and his power and his hope. So let me finish. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law it came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as, rain, as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the Christian hope? Eternal life. What makes that hope certain? The action of the one man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now for those of you who are Christians, remember this. Those who have been justified will be glorified. There's a time... Between those two things, there's a whole lot of suffering between those two things, both within us and without us. But our end point is guaranteed. And it's guaranteed because of what Christ did. Not your holiness, not the strength of your faith, but by him who died for us.
You want certainty? Then look at the cross. You've got doubts? Then look at the cross where our champion submitted to the reign of death so that we might participate in the reign of life. For those of you who aren't yet Christians, remember this. If you are in Christ, then you're in Adam. And as long as you're hiding behind him as your champion, all that awaits you is condemnation and death. Your champion sucks. And this is the one time where changing teams when your team is losing is acceptable. You don't do it in sport, but you do do it for the sake of your soul. Now is the time to change sides. Place your faith in Jesus. Stand in his army. And so find hope. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we know that there are many doubts that we have in our minds about the truth of what you tell us, and at times it is hard to hold on to it, at times it is hard to hope. But I pray that because of Jesus' work, we will know certain hope, that when we doubt we will turn to him, we will remember that even in our sufferings we can look to the cross and see your love, see your victory. I pray that this will settle us, make us stronger. And that just as you say at the beginning of Romans 5, that our suffering will lead to endurance, which will lead to character, and then eventually hope, a hope that doesn't disappoint. And Lord, we are so thankful we have that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <coughs>